Welcome to The Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Jerry Chanel. Jerry is a prize-winning freelance journalist. She lived in France for five years, where she began research for her latest book, Saving Mona Lisa. Welcome, Jerry. I'm glad to be here. Delighted that you're here, and we're very much looking forward to this evening's author talk. I'm looking forward to meeting everybody. So, um, first off, personally, thank you. Um, I sat down and just devoured this book. It's a great, great read. Thank you. And I'm so curious to uh, find out, how did you find your way to the story? In a very ironic way. I was always interested in France. I was always interested in the Louvre Museum. And a friend invited me to see an old documentary, I think from the 1960s. Um, and in the first minute of the film, one moderator said to the other, it wasn't about the war in particular, but this was her opening. Um, she said that the French evacuated the museum to hide the art from the Nazis, uh, and they, some of the art was hidden in caves. They could not evacuate the large paintings, and so they had to find creative ways to hide those large paintings. And one of them they installed at a false ceiling in a Parisian restaurant, um, and throughout the occupation, the Nazis unknowingly dined underneath, not knowing it was above their heads. So, And then the rest of the documentary was about other things. And I came home, and I was fascinated. I knew a lot about the history of the museum, and I thought, I wonder what piece of art that was. So I literally came home, took off my coat, sat down at my computer, and tried to find out what piece of art it was. Uh, and I looked, and I looked, and I didn't see it, but really... Within 20 minutes, I started finding some amazing photographs, a number of which are in the book. There's more than 80 photographs, I think, most of them of that time. Um, and that, and so I got caught up in the story from these mesmerizing, mesmerizing photographs and then bits and pieces of a story. And I thought, I want to find out this story. Let me find out what book tells this story and realized there wasn't one. And so I started digging. But the biggest irony of my reason for coming upon the story is not a single word that woman said at the beginning of that documentary was true. I was I was wondering where I missed that in the <laughs> book <laughs> when you were telling that. And I have to say that I'm so glad to hear that this was a surprise because I was an art history major. And when I started reading this, I thought, how did I not know this? So you bring a career in journalism to the telling of this story. Um, and it's such a compelling story. And I want to I sort of start out from the beginning and say that let's not have any need for spoiler alert. And hopefully we can have a discussion without, reading, uh, without ruining this because mm -hmm. I think everybody should really devour this book as well. It's such a, it's such a good story and so beautifully told. Um, but that said, could you give a short synopsis, a little bit of a teaser so we know what we're talking about? Because its, it's title suggests saving the Mona Lisa, but it's a little bit larger. It, right. It's much more than that. So the evacuation of the museum uh, on the eve of World War II was the biggest, fastest museum evacuation in history. So the beginning part is really a backstory of how a museum learns that it has to protect its art because it, early on in the 1800s there was war in Paris then um, and the efforts were a bit pathetic to, to protect the art. And so the backstory is important because all the pieces fit together like a puzzle. So, for example, at the very end of World War I, 
everyone assumed there was likely to be a World War II. And so, for example, the French began planning for this evacuation, which took place at the end of August and in September 1939, at least as far back as 1932. So it was planned down to the last minute detail with the examination of chateau that would be appropriate. And some of the uh, inspection reports are, are completely fascinating. Um, they tested uh, the effect of incendiary bombs to see what an effect it would have on the walls. And so it's impossible to understand what happened without understanding how they prepared for seven years before it actually happened. So that's the first part. It talks about the actual evacuation, which was ex extraordinary, the way it was executed. But then it follows the path of the art through the war, because even if that evacuation was very carefully planned, they moved art to the Loire Valley. I'm not giving it anything right. away. But then in the spring of 1940, when the Germans actually invaded France or were heading very quickly towards Paris, they were worried about the safety of the art in the Loire Valley. And that's a whole separate evacuation. And it is extraordinary in its own way because, for example, all the good trucks had been um, taken by the military. The fuel had been taken by the military. The Germans were bombing overhead. And then there were all kinds of other concerns because art has to be conserved wherever it is. So, for example, they had to monitor humidity in the chateau and there were problems with humidity, so then they had to evacuate the Mona Lisa somewhere else. And it was one thing after another. And then that's one layer of the story, but another layer, which can't be unraveled from it, is the Germans trying to take it and the different ways they tried to take it and how the French fought back against that. And so there's so many layers to it. How did you reconstruct the story? How, how was the research it process? Was, uh, was, I lost track. It was at least five years of research, um, partly in the US at different libraries in the US, partly at different libraries in France, and at many uh, archives, and many archives in France, um, in, in the Paris area, interviewing the few witnesses that are left, which from a personal level was extraordinary, was an extraordinary experience. At that time, the archives of the French National Museums was located within a special area of, of Louvre. Um, and I was there, was it two years or three years, during the summers taking pictures of documents. They were amazingly helpful. Um, and what that allowed me to do, because at that point I was moving back to the U.S., then I could spend the winters looking at documents because I had thousands and thousands of archival documents at my disposal. And one of the most amazing parts about that is I assumed they'd sit me down in front of a microfilm machine and I'd say I would like file because there were there were different kinds of you know in, in, indices. And I'd say, I want file X-22 or whatever it was. And they brought me yellowed paper from the 1930s or 1920s or 1870s with actual file copies of correspondence that were crumbling. And literally, at the end of every day, I'd have a, a pile of, of crumb, paper crumbs from handling the documents. So I was literally touching history, and it was truly an amazing, that alone was an, an amazing experience. That they knew 
to prepare for this was quite remarkable, I think. Um, and that they prepared for it with, I think it's safe to say, the precision of a military exercise. I mean, it, it's quite incredible. Yes, and it was incredible to look at the documents because it was file after file. They measured the size of paintings. They measured the sizes of the staircases. They measured the sizes of elevators. And you could see in different file documents a plan, a floor plan, and, and arrows that told people to go down which hallway with which paintings and what kind of container to put it in and how to get it downstairs. And then to prioritize which works of art needed to get rescued first. Um, yes. And all of this happening sort of as the war is unf unfolding. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting read from a point of view of you learn about history, you learn about borders, you learn about cultural preservation. One of the things that was fascinating to me was when I was in school, I honestly wasn't interested in history because to me it was 12 years or however many, whenever we started learning about history, dates, battles, borders, and political parties. And what failed to come across was that it was about people. And what to me is most interesting about this book and that I tried to weave in throughout the whole thing is that it's not just a story of, of moving art, it's the story of people. Oh, it's, that segues well into my next question, which is that you have managed uh, to bring, bring each one of these people, um, I don't want to use the word alive, but you really, I get a sense that I know these people, that you're very comfortable uh, creating these scenes, creating the situations, um, and they did this under great peril. Um, how did you, again, uh, begin to understand who they were and tell their stories? A number of them wrote memoirs at some point after the war. I read every single one of them. Um, some of the information came from upon their deaths. There was a tribute as part of their car long-standing careers in the Arts Administration. So... I could read what people who had worked alongside them said about them. Uh, so it was a combination of things plus what they wrote in their reports. If they were some of the curators who were in exile with the art, had to write reports back to the national director of the French National Museums. And it wasn't just reports about there appears to be a spot of mold in the corner of painting X. It was things like we need more snake bite kits, which is not anything you would imagine coming across when you're reading a book about art preservation, but they were in Chateau in the countryside, and, and some of the reports were, were expressing from one of the curators frustration about bickering among the guards. And so there were bits and pieces of like following this m massive trail of crumbs that there were pieces of it all, all over. And it felt as though there was no question in their mind that they would do all that needed to be done to keep these works safe. Yes. For them, it wasn't a question of just preserving property. It was a question of preserving the, the whole French culture. And these same people, many of them were also in the resistance, so they were... so. Some of them were risking their lives as members of the resistance, but 
many of them were risking their lives to protect the art. So for example, at one point, so they tried to hide some of the art that had of the Jew, Jewish collectors, Jewish gallery owners that had not been taken right away, um, you know, stolen right away. And so in one chateau in the southwest of France, a curator came to visit one day and recognized a Rothschild insignia on a crate. Um, and they knew a German was coming to inspect, and they spent part of the day shaving down the sides of this crate to get rid of the insignia so the Germans wouldn't see it. And that was one tiny little thing, but there were so many things they did that had they been caught doing any of it, they would have lost their jobs. They very well could have been imprisoned. And at one point, a number of the Jacques Jojard, who's sort of the hero of the story, he was the head of the museum, head of the French National Museums, was constantly, um, you couldn't say no to the head of the Vichy government or to a Nazi officer, so he had to find creative ways of stalling and bluffing and procrastinating. Um, and at one point, one of the senior Vichy of government officials um, threatened to have his head um, and it would have been his along with some of the other curators. And so they had made a plan to escape into the mountains, of a backup plan to escape into the mountains of southwest France because they thought they could be executed for trying to prevent just two items from going to Germany. That's what they were fighting ab about against at that point. And, and the fact that these, these items were sort of hoggled over, if I may, <laughs> Um, by some of the Germans, um, and there was just such a, a desire to get them into their own possession. Yes, because uh. one, one level was Hitler had plans for his grand museum, uh, the biggest, most wonderful art museum in the world, and he planned on buying some of it and stealing the rest. So he sort of had designs on the whole French national collection. So he made moves at the beginning of the occupation and towards the end when things weren't looking, when the tide turned against Germany to try and get it all. But in between, some of Hitler's senior henchmen, they were all, it was a very popular thing because of Hitler's interest in art to be an art collector if you were a senior member of the Nazi party. Um, and they were avid personal collectors and they really wanted some of those items for their personal collections. Were you surprised in doing the research um, to learn about how, I'm, I'm searching here for the words, but I mean, how orchestrated this was and how heroic um, in, in both, you know, sort of in all senses of the word, how this from happened? From the beginning, from the beginning, it, it were little indications of that. And throughout the whole entire process, there really almost wasn't a process until the very end that I was editing it for continuity. Because I had to really tell myself, no, you need to finish. Um, because I just kept finding other layers and other, other pathways of the same story. And it just, I think, could have gone on forever. It, is there one person or one sort of snapshot in there, and I don't mean the photographs, but a snapshot moment which was pivotal in telling the story or piecing it all together? No, there wasn't one single one. There were just many, many, many. But I can tell you one little anecdote that was wonderful on many levels for me. 
I learned early on that you can't, like in that documentary, um, and I ended up with 30 pages of notes about the errors that I came across, which I never would have expected. I assume if you read a history book or article in the newspaper, it's fact, right? But not necessarily. Um, and so I kept getting having note after note after note, and I had read somewhere that, well, it is a fact that the Mona Lisa, there was a special case made for the painting to travel around in, and I had read somewhere that it was lined in red velvet, and I thought, oh, well, what a wonderful visual detail to include, but I learned at that point that there was at least a 50-50 chance that somebody just thought that sounded good, um, and so I was hesitant to include it, and so the curators followed the art around, and there were two curators who were married to each other who happened to have a 12-year-old daughter, or a daughter who was 12 years old in 1940, and she was and is um, a novelist in France, and she wrote sort of a historical novel about a girl during World War II whose parents were art curators, and it mentioned the red velvet. And miraculously, someone connected me with someone with someone else, and I had a chance to sit down with her in France for three hours um, and talk to her, and it was just such a, the whole three hours was wonderful, but at one point I said, I have a question. I read that the lining was red velvet, do you, did you ever see it? Do you, you know, couldn't you confirm that it was red velvet? And she just laughed and she said, yes, I remember like it was yesterday because in one of the chateau earlier in the years that the painting moved around France, um, there was a chateau that had a humidity problem and her parents kept the painting in her bedroom in their bedroom and she said and sometimes they'd open it up and show it to me so sure I know it was red velvet I love I loved the the image of them all sort of sleeping with these yeah, great works they of did. art yeah they absolutely did um so you use photography in the book and I found it so beautifully paced throughout the book and so important I'm also I'm curious about how you found the photographs and also that some of the situations that were photographed were documented what was the thinking behind that in your mind? Some of the documentation of what happened um, was done against the express wishes of Jacques Jojard, the head of the French National Museums, who did not want the evacuation publicized. But, you know, there were trucks lined up all alongside the Seine, so if a journalist was standing there, they took pictures. And some of it they were allowed inside the museum for documentary purposes. Um, and so it was a great struggle. It took all, there was one photograph that took three years to get permission to reproduce. Um, there were four or five that came from um, the French National Libraries that took two years because I went with a list of the photographs and they said, no, it is not possible. Sorry, this is not possible. And I, where can you go? And I was back the next year and luckily spoke to someone else who explained to me how to go about the process. Um, so we, some came from family members. And so that was a whole separate journey to, I came upon some of them by accident uh, when I was looking through other files, but to track them down and to get permission to use them was a, was a whole separate journey. But I felt since that is what originally caught my interest, they, when they say a picture's worth a thousand words, in this case it really, truly is. 
Um, so it was really important for me to get all these photographs. And I just kept pushing until I got them. And it was also important for me that they be placed where they belonged in the story because it has always driven me crazy to read a book and then there's a collection of plates in the middle and you flip back and forth. And yeah. I said, no, this these need to follow the story. And they do, as mm. I said, so so well it's not intrusive at all it just it you need it where they're where they're set um so i imagine they were pretty amazing to get a hold of yeah um in terms of telling the story and one of the other things i wanted to ask you is do you when you go back to the Louvre, does it have a whole different feel to it now is it a different experience Yes, it, but it always did because for me, having known about some other aspects of the history, when I walk in there, in a way it's not about the art because it started as a fortress 800 years ago. So when I look at it, I feel like I'm looking at the ghosts of the kings and the queens and the intrigues and everything that happened there. And the, the architecture of the, this enormous building is extraordinary. So it's it just enriches that whole thing that I loved about it in the first place was I felt like I I'm just walking among even more ghosts. So for example, the one tiny little piece which w that I uncovered completely by accident is the museum for the most part was deserted. There were a few items left behind and some reproductions were left behind of some sculptures, but there had to there had to be guards and I came across a biography, an autobiography of one, of one of the guards, so a very obscure biography, who, and he wrote about his experience as a young man and how he and one of the other young guards um, would sort of play a game of hide-and-seek based on sort of the French version of Phantom of the Opera running among these empty halls. And so when I walk through the halls, it's, that's what I see, not even, in, in a sense, not even the art. And I think it's a really important story to tell in terms of, as I, I mentioned before, the idea of cultural preservation and the I, the notion of what individuals will do to hold on to these treasures. I, I, and again, a per great personal peril. Well, I'll give you one other example. As the Ger Right away, as the Germans started looting the art from the Jewish gallery owners and collectors, they originally stored it in an annex to the German um, embassy. They ran out of room. They came to Jacques Jojard, head of the French National Museums, and asked for some room in the Louvre. And he agreed to let them use three rooms because he thought maybe there was some way to keep an eye on it to, in maybe hopes of gathering information to get it back later because he couldn't prevent them from taking it. Um, those three rooms filled up to the ceiling um, there's uh, photographs of crates up to the ceiling and of trucks bringing it in. Um, it filled up in three weeks. They came back and wanted a whole building. So he arranged, this is, I suppose, a tiny little spoiler in the story, but it's just one piece, for oh, he convinced them that the French care the caretaker from before the war should be allowed to remain in this museum building because she knew about the heating systems, and she was a very mousy-looking, quiet, unassuming woman and the Germans figured let her stay she looks harmless but they didn't know that she spoke fluent German and had a photographic memory and throughout the occupation she kept she would flip through their logs at lunchtime when they would leave the shipping logs um, 
and would go home and transcribe them at night. And she would meet with Jacques Jojard and pass along information. And it's partly due to her efforts. And it's portrayed in a way in the Monuments Men, this event, but in a very superficial way. Um, she would have been executed if they found out. And at one part, one at one point, one of the Germans was suspicious and said to her, you know what we do to people who are doing what they're not supposed to? And she just looked right at him and said, of course I do. And she just kept on doing it. She totally risked her life in the hope that some of that record keeping could get back the stolen Jewish art. Amazing. So again, for our listeners, the book is Saving Mona Lisa, The Battle to Protect the Louvre and Its Treasures from the Nazis. It's available at bookstores nationwide, as well as through the Yiddish Book Center's on-site and online English language bookstore, YiddishBookCenter.org. Thank you so much for joining me and again for writing the book, and I hope you've got another project in the works. Thank you for having me. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a podcast of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Mass. I'm Janet Engelson, bookkeeper at the Yiddish Book Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 8, Collecting Stories, where Krista Whitney, our Oral History Project Director, talks about her experiences gathering stories and the art of listening. Seid mehr stark und gesund. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.